The things that I talk about now are not so much about the problem. It's about the solutions because the problem is already identified. And it's not only changed our discussions, it's changed discussions really across the country and even the world. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. So my guest today on Broad Mike is Catherine Finney, the founder and managing director of Digital Undivided, a social enterprise that finds, supports, and trains urban tech entrepreneurs. Digital Undivided leads several successful programs and initiatives, including Focus Fellows, a tech accelerator incubator for black women founders and co-founders. Catherine is also the visionary behind Project Diane, and that's the hashtag Project Diane, a data project disrupting pattern matching in tech. Catherine, I am so happy to have you here on Broad Mike. Oh, it's great to be here, Kelly. Thanks for having me. All right. So, huge, massive congratulations on the recent launch of BIG, a new accelerator in Atlanta dedicated to supporting female African-American entrepreneurs the Harriet Fund, and Harriet Angels. Okay, in your own words, for someone who doesn't know all these things you're doing, give us a scoop on Atlanta, why Atlanta, what's big, and the Harriet Fund and Harriet Angels. Well, last February, February 2015, we embarked on this data collection project called Project Diane, named after Diane Nash. Diane Nash is this fabulous, amazing great woman who was a member of the civil rights movement. In fact, she was portrayed in the movie Selma, but a lot of people don't know who she is. She was sort of the architect of the Selma march. And so we decided to name it after her because we were looking at what's going on with black women in tech. And what is going on? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Or sometimes not a lot. Um, And what we found was that of the approximately 10,000 plus venture deals, venture capital deals that happened between 2012 and 2014, black women only accounted for about 24 of those deals, or 0.2%, less than zero, basically. And that really, really disturbed us because we were like, look, how are we going to make change? How are we going to be a part of this space if we're not getting the funding and we're not getting the support that we need in order to build and grow successful businesses? So Project Diane, we took this time a year or so and really looked at what was going on with black women in tech and in entrepreneurship in general. And we found that there was only about 88 black women-led startups, which was shocking and sad. There's about 2,200 women-led startups in general in the U.S. So black women are somewhere around 3% of the total startups uh, created and led by women. Uh, Our population in terms of women are about 14 to 15%. So we're way, 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 way under. And we really looked at other data points, such as how much are black women raising. We found that black women were raising on average $36,000. The average white male-led startup raises about $1.3 million. So we weren't even raising enough to really fail appropriately, (laughs) which is sad. Because the bargain basement failure rate. Exactly. Okay. 
And so all the ideas, all the different activities that we're doing are a result of that, of this data and seeing what what do we do next? How do we impact change? And how do we fundamentally change what's going on in tech right now? So BIG, uh, the BIG Accelerator, we named it BIG because we thought, why not go BIG? Um, and we want every time someone thinks about what we do and every time someone thinks about women, women of color, black and Latina women in tech, they think of big ideas and big dreams and big companies and big markets. To underscore markets is really important. Yeah, they love us all as a market, but heck to funding us. Anyway, exactly. all right, we're we'll aside there. <laughs> And so we named it big, and we're really excited. It's in partnership with the United States Small Business Administration. We won an accelerator program competition that they had, which is really exciting. The city of Atlanta, the mayor, Mayor Kasim Reed, is a big supporter of ours. And so we're super excited about it. It's the first accelerator innovation center for black and Latina women. Um, And we're really excited about what's going to come out of it and what type of opportunities this is going to afford the community. That's amazing. Okay, so let's just stay on big for a second. Um, when's the accelerator launching? What type of entrepreneurs are you looking for? So the accelerator is launching this summer. Um, the type of entrepreneurs we're looking for, it's, it's really interesting. The role I have in our company is I'm 100% pro-entrepreneur. Like, I love the entrepreneur. I want us to all create companies. Every time I meet someone, I'm like, are you creating a company? I need you to create a company. Um, So my role and what I look for are great entrepreneurs. I look for people who have a vision, who know what it is that they want, who understand the markets, who have a domain-level experience, meaning they have experience in doing what they actually want to do in terms of a company, and they have the ability to complete it. So a lot of the questions I ask during the interview process is about what have you done? Tell me a time where you couldn't complete something. Tell me a time that you were able to complete something with a lot of adversity. Those are the things that I look for because being an entrepreneur is so incredibly hard. Um, Other members of the team, particularly Gayla Jennings, who is the head of Harriet Fund, which is our venture fund that funds women that come through the program, she's looking for really what's your market? Do you understand your business model? Is your business model realistic? Can you actually make money. You wouldn't believe how many people have not thought about how they're going to make money. You have to know how you're going to make money if you're going to ask for someone's, for investment from someone. Um, are you looking at this? Yeah, as, as I like to say to people, <laughs> venture funding is not a revenue model. <laughs> it isn't, right? A lot of people take it as that. It isn't. Like, how are you going to get someone to give you money? Uh, and that's a really, really important sort of aspect that a lot of women of color entrepreneurs, I think, tend to overlook. A lot of the companies we build are legacy-based companies, meaning companies that we build to then hand on to our children or our children's children. Well, as an investor, I want my money back. I don't want to fund a company that's going to take 40 years before it exits or something for you to give your kids. I want to fund something that's going to give me money and put money back into my bank account. But this is also like so important what you're, you know, that point was you're talking about, like, Legacy businesses where when we think about the economy of the United States, it is built on small businesses. But how much more powerful could the economy be if some of these legacy businesses, right, that have been transforming communities, improving households, you know, lifting up not just themselves but and their family, but their communities, how much more powerful would our economy be if we were funding and scaling and growing those businesses? It would be amazing, 
right? It's Main Street is what drives Wall Street. And so I think it's really important that we start to think of it in that way. But there is that investment end of it. And I, and I don't want to sort of poo-poo, to use a <laughs> word my mother uses a lot. I don't want to put that to the side because I think that's really important. Um, even when you receive a loan from a bank, they want you to be able to repay that loan back. And so I think what happens to a lot of entrepreneurs who've been sort of sold lately on this this sort of myth that you raise as much money as you possibly can and you get really, really big and then you figure out how to do your business model. Well, I was just reading in, in the Wall Street Journal today that the venture, particularly last quarter, the amount of venture funding was really, really down quite significantly and it's going to continue to go down. So now we're in this venture crunch where it's going to be very hard to get money to scale to that really big big, big number and then figure out your business model. You're going to, as an entrepreneur, have to know how you're going to make money from day one. It doesn't mean that you're making money day one. It doesn't mean that you're going to be revenue positive day one, but you have to know how you're going to make it, whether you're a small business, whether you're a startup, or whether you're a large business. Got, got, got to make that money. Let's go back to Harriet Fund and Harriet Angels. How are those working with big Project Diane, all your other ventures? How does that all fit in? Well, it's really interesting. One of the challenges that we found from Project Diane was that funding is an issue. Black and Latino women are not getting the funding. And there's a whole myriad of reasons why. Um, it, we're not seen and marketed as as entrepreneurs, particularly in the tech space. Um, our communities don't have as much wealth as other communities. There's something about, I think there are around 10 million, or excuse me, 10,000 Black millionaires of those black millionaires, only about 1,500 are actually liquid. Most of the wealth in the black community are in our homes. So we don't have a lot of people who can give us money and give us startup funding that they won't want immediately back or maybe wouldn't put them in some sort of severe financial trouble. So one of the things that we looked at is, okay, how do we solve that? How do we get around that? How do we get the funding to people who need it in order to grow their businesses? And so the two ways was... Uh, Harriet Fund, which is our $10 million venture fund. Um, and that is for companies that go through our big accelerator program. You have to prove that you can build a product, that you can scale it, and that you can get a customer. That's very, very, very important. Venture money is harder money. It is, It just is. You have to have that solid business plan and you have to ha- know where you're going. The angel money is different. Um, angels are people who have been successful usually in business who are investing in others because they want to give the opportunity. As an angel, you're not as worried about getting your money back. You you would like to get it back. We just but, are, <laughs> sort of patient, you know, it's going to be it's longer. It's capital, right? Yeah. It's you want patient. you want that return. It's, you know, the wealth transfer we say for our families, but you're just you're you're there for I think for a Different motivational reasons on top of I want to return. Exactly right. It's a little bit patient capital. So you're you're not you're not necessarily me- needing the money in two to three years, right? You're investing in the entrepreneur. You're taking a risk. It's very very risky, and most angels know that. And that's why you have to go through an accreditation process, right? So that you can actually afford to lose the money. And so our angel syndicate is really a way for us to bring in people who are new 
to the investment space. What we realize is that there are a lot of African-Americans, Latinos, and other folks as well who would love to invest, who have the financial ability to invest, who can pass the accreditation process, but are new to this investment and want to sort of test the waters and help develop their own investment thesis. Well, a, well, a deal flow is a big issue. It's and big issue. and And if you are someone who is still employed um, and you have other interest, but you somehow want to know about angel investing, you know, it's it's time consuming. And so to have actually a vetted deal flow from someone you trust, it's like massively helpful. It's massively helpful. And there's also platforms now that make it easier. So the Harriet Syndicate is on the AngelList platform. And we found that that's very, very helpful because it allows you to sort of go through the accreditation process to get involved, but on your own time. You don't have to worry about what hours an attorney is available for you to talk to. There isn't a bunch of paperwork. It's very accessible to people who are new in the sort of angel investing space. It also allows you access to deal flow from experienced folks. So you have access to the angel deal flow that we have at Harriet Angels, but you also have access to deal flow from other top folks who lead their own syndicates. Um, Jason Calakintis, I always say Jason's name wrong, but Chase of, um, who was the founder of Weblogs, he has a big, big syndicate that invites people in. Um, there's other big name people on there who also have really great syndicates as well. Um, of course, we would love people to join the the Harriet Syndicate. And well, maybe Jason Calacanis and others can get their butts yes. over to the to the Harriet right, Angels. Right? <laughs> exactly. We could we could use you, Jason, but. Again, this is a pathway, an easy pathway for people who want to get involved, who are financially able to get involved, to get involved and start learning about investment. And that's what we see with the Harriet Angels is really we are a conduit, a, a channel for people who have never thought about angel investing to get involved. And not only will they learn about investment, not only will they start to develop their own investment thesis, and also not only will we provide them a return, hopefully, they'll also be able to help these companies who prior had a very difficult time getting the funding they need. Not because they weren't great companies, but because of a whole slew of social factors. Now get the funding to grow and accelerate their companies. So good. I'm so glad you're doing this. What? Still, let's keep the focus on you again for for another minute here. Um, When did you know you were an entrepreneur? I think I was born an entrepreneur, to be really honest. Um, In the fourth grade, I had a very lucrative friendship bracelet business. (laughs) I had cornered the market um, in South Minneapolis, where I grew up, and I would do different colors. I negotiated uh, supplier pricing from Kmart. I had a friend who worked at Kmart. She was an older girl who was a neighbor of ours who worked at Kmart. I would use her discount to buy the embroidery thread. So I had pricing, like, really down well. Um, I hired my brother. I gave him one of his first jobs. Um, He was in high school, and he was a big uh, sports star. And I used him to sell for me in high school. So he he already had the celebrity endorsement down. (laughs) Basically. And it's funny. My my brother is like a VP of sales now. And I'm like, I'm the reason why you got into sales, because your sister gave you your first sales job. Um, And I remember I was clearing like 40 to 50 bucks a week. I was like nine. And my parents went out to dinner once and, you know, the check came and I was like, I have this. And I remember my parents kind of looking like, and I know in their mind, like, is she selling drugs or something? Like, how does she have like 60 bucks 
just on her to, like, pay for dinner. Yes. Um, That was my first business. And then I had a very lucrative babysitting business. Um, I had that for several years. I had a whole staff. Um, and, and that was really great. It was our whole neighborhood. I had it covered. Um, we would do after school care, all sorts of things. So I was always an entrepreneur. Um, always my hiring life. people. Like it's supposed to be like yes. just being the entrepreneur who I had the lemonade stand or I had the paper route. No, no, no. You were hiring people. You were well, a I need hi- to scale. I you- couldn't scale by myself. <laughs> also, I had school from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. So, and I wanted to make sure that I was always selling. You know, it was the ABCs always be selling. <laughs> I was always selling, even when I was in math class. That's. I'm I'm just sitting here cracking up. I, that's like beyond beyond awesome. I was going to say, are you, are you still employing your brother? Or has he gone on to other things? <laughs> well, my brother has gone on to much better things now. But it was it was my birthday uh, about a week ago, and my brother came in with my niece and nephew, and we were talking about this exact thing of um, how I employed him and how he was a really great salesman, and you know I would give him like bonuses and. <laughs> And how I always and and in my family, as a joke, was how I always had money, and people didn't know where I got it from. From like seven, I always just had money. And I'm just laughing, of course. You know, as you said, you know, parents thinking you're selling drugs. But we'll, another conversation <laughs> on the stereotypes we can have on all of that. Um, do you see yourself as a social entrepreneur? Um, yes and no. I I feel sometimes this. That title is often put to anyone who's doing anything that's not considered, quote-unquote, mainstream. And I believe what we're doing is mainstream. Um, I would say yes in many ways because it's not motivated purely by market. Market is a big part of it. We do want a return, but that's not the only motivation. It's sort of parallel to this other motivation of, of getting folks into this space having people see the opportunities that are available of tech entrepreneurship. Um, that's incredibly important because we know the future is being created and the people who are going to be the majority of folks in the future are not being part of that. And I think that that's a big problem. So if that is considered a social entrepreneurship sort of uh, thought or ethos, then yeah, you can consider me that. It's, it's so funny because sort of asking that question and having asked other guests that question, it always seems to me that you know as soon as you put – you know, social entrepreneurs, like, oh, that other category yeah. couldn't make it in the real category because they're a social entrepreneur. Where, so I really think about it, it's like you've identified a massive market opportunity, you know, undervalued, overlooked entrepreneurs, right? What you get to open up by doing this. And by the way, we now get to lift up communities yeah. and improve innovation because of it. Like, there's a whole new special category for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, seriously. And I think it's really interesting. That the pitch that I make to potential partners and potential investors is you can make money from other people's stupidity. The fact that other people have these sort of social limitations that you may not have is a market opportunity for you. Here's a market that no one is paying attention to for the simple fact that they are other. And you can capitalize off of that, and you can make a lot of money off of that. All right, let's jump back to Project Diane for a second. How has that changed your work? It's changed our work because we are able to quantify the problem. It's very difficult to ignore a problem 
when you have it quantified, when you have numbers, when you have real data. And that has really changed a lot of the conversations that we've had. Prior to Project Diane, when we would talk about this sort of issue, it was very anecdotal, right? We would say, it's bad out there for a sister. Um, <laughs> and they're like, okay, but we don't know what that means. Like, what is bad? Is bad means five? Does it mean 500? Does it mean 5,000? Now we can say bad means 88. And to have it's that, really bad. It means really bad. <laughs> bad means really, really bad. And here's the number. And, and and it gives us a baseline. It gives us all sort of a level playing field that we all can see where we need to go from, right? And that's changed our discussions significantly. The things that I talk about now are not so much about the problem. It's about the solutions because the problem is already identified. Right. And that's been really great. And it's not only changed our discussions, it's changed discussions really across across the country and even the world. I spend a lot of time in D.C. now, and there's a lot of discussions at the SBA and at the White House about Project Diane and what we uncovered and how do we solve it? What role does government play in this? Um, and there's a really big role for government in this, probably the biggest role. And I know some people are not excited about government getting involved in different things, but in this case, this is something that government has to be involved in. So what role do you think they have? Well, government's role is funders, right? Most of your traditional venture firms, their major LPs are governments, actually. It's the pension funds of states like California and New York. Um, The irony of it is, is that these funds are not hiring, nor are they funding people of color, but the money they're using to fund the companies they invest in come from people of color. They come from my grandparents and their pension funds. And I think for government to start to ask the question, if you're going to use our money, if you're going to use the money of our diverse population, then you need to make sure that you're investing in diverse populations. It it doesn't make any sense for you to take money from these folks that you're then saying that their grandchildren and children are not worthy enough of receiving your capital. And I think governments can play a really big role in making sure that happens. Um, Also, the venture community has been horrible at hiring. I mean, the diversity is ridiculous. It's something like... um, of the 1,800 or so venture partners in the U.S., it's something like 36 black men and about four black women, which is horrible. This <laughs> is absolutely horrible. Um, and it's not only horrible from the fact that, you know, it doesn't, it's not representative of the population of the United States. It's horrible because you're missing out on opportunities. You cannot properly evaluate opportunities that come forth because you don't understand the market. You don't have someone there who understands the market. And as a result, you think the market is somehow not worthy. You know, if a person comes to you talking about black women and hair, right? Maybe a new hair product or new hair system for black women, and you don't know that black women buy over 40% of all hair care products in the United States, over 40% of all hair care products, you would not understand the market and you would miss it. Right, and and, and the evidence is already out there that um, so many people aren't curious enough to say, I don't get it. Like, I don't, I you know, I'm an old, white, bald guy. I don't get why the hair care is a big market. Like, they're not, I say, so many people are just not curious enough to get into the shoes of the other and say, explain this to me. Why is this a big market? I don't get it. I don't use it. Explain it to me. Which is sad because they're venture 
capitalist, right? The capitalist being the major word here. And you're not looking at where you can capitalize. You're not looking at markets you can capitalize on purely because of your own social issues. Crazy. Crazy. We talk about this for hours. Um, let's go back to some of your, not all the way back to your friendship bracelet. Yeah, not, not back there. Not back there, but you... Oh, that was a good business. That was a high no. margin. Why, why are we doing with this other stuff? Maybe we should just go back to that. Let's talk about um, black women in terms of being this fastest growing group of entrepreneurs. You were a highly successful fashion blogger. Uh what is your advice or guidance for entrepreneurs out there who aren't necessarily going to be um, the the next Park Pick, the next um, Google, the next you know highly scalable, but they've got really good businesses? And given that you have mm-hmm. this in, this intuition, this innate ability to scale, what's your advice to those entrepreneurs? My advice to them is always understand what your business model is. Always understand where your money's coming from. I think that's something that is not really drilled into us. Understand who's going to buy your product and really know who's going to buy your product. And also realize that you are not your customer. Um, I see that a lot with a lot of uh, women entrepreneurs I talk to of where they are so in love with their product. They're so in love with their product. They're just, it's like, yes, I so love this. Um, but no one else is. And you have to always think like your customer and what is it that they want? What is it that they need? And how is what you're doing, if it's a service or product, is helping them fulfill that need? That's just so incredibly important. It's really interesting how many people sort of ignore that. So when I started Budget Fashionista, I started it completely as a blog. Like, it was not, like, a business because when I started it in 2003, no one was making money on the Internet. Uh, it was right after the big bust. Uh, everyone was just, like, so sour on the Internet at that point. Um, no one thought the Internet could make money, if you can believe that. Um, comical, really, comical to think of that now. They were like, like, no one's going to make money. This thing is a fad. I remember all these discussions with people about how the internet was a fad. Um, so I came in during the height of the fad discussion and started writing about budget shopping and how to save money. I was newly married. I was spending a ton of money and happened to learn about this new thing called SEO at that time um, and a relatively new search engine called Google, which was like disrupting the way people found information online. So um, my husband and I, we created the site. We used an early platform called Gray Matter, which was the precursor to WordPress. Um, It was so back in the day that I had to hand code everything. So I had to know HTML. And I know HTML like the back of my hand. I know it probably as well as English writing at this point. So we had to hard code everything. Everything had to be scanned. Every, I mean, it was just so tedious now that I think about <laughs> where we're at now. Um, and But I happened to marry someone useful. That's what I always say to people. Marry a partner with someone who has a skill set that can help you in some way. Um, and so he knew about SEO, and we did a lot of reading. And so we started to write using keywords. Um, I was writing you know, anyway, what I was going to say, but why not, if if it's a blue sweater, why not say I'm buying a blue sweater from Nordstrom's, right? If I was buying a blue sweater from Nordstrom's. So we learned all this keyword stuff, and as a result, we came up, number one, when you search for people who budget shop, 
And and a reporter from the Associated Press Googled budget shopping and came and we came right up, popped up. And she did an interview with us that just took off. And I don't know if people will remember that IBM commercial from way back in the day where they had this team put their business online. And then at first, it's like just one person, and it goes to 100 people. And then all of a sudden, it's like a million people. And they're like, oh, my goodness, we have to get a bigger server. That's what happened to us as a result of that. Um, And then that led to a lot of different things. Uh, But at first, the company was so focused on me. It was a lifestyle company. It was focused very much on me and, and what I wanted to do. And we were starting about six or seven years in. We're starting to get... Um, questions from people who were interested in possibly purchasing it. But there was always one little problem. It was a lifestyle business, and it was focused on me. And at one point, it even had, like, a little picture of me and stuff. It was just totally 100% Catherine. And so I had to make a decision. Did I want to stick with this and have this be sort of my calling card in life um, and take it to its logical conclusion, which at that time was um, a book, I had a book. I was going to write another book. It was to do television. So we were developing this great television show uh, based on the concept. Or did I want to do something else? Did I want to go this other route where it would allow me to do other things in life? And it was a really tough decision that I had to make. Um, And at that point, I decided I didn't want this to be my calling card. It could be part of the calling card. It could be a paragraph on the calling card. But I didn't want it to be the whole card. You were meant to do something bigger. I wanted to do something bigger. No, it's not that budget shopping isn't helpful. But thank you for taking the threshold because if you hadn't, we wouldn't have Digital Undivided. We wouldn't have Big. We wouldn't have Focus Fellows. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. I don't don't, – I think it was – Having the vision at some, I didn't know what that vision was, but I knew that there was something more out there. And so I sent out, it took us about two or three years to actually get the site in a place in which I could sell it. Um, because it was so heavily attached to me, we had to decouple it from Catherine. So it was a whole big process um, of decoupling it. But once we did and it was prepared, then I was able to pursue and and, ha- and and sell it, which was a whole other process. All right, we're going to save that for a uh, a future conversation. Okay, we're going to go to the fun part now. Not that the rest of this wasn't fun. We're going to go, these are the questions um, I ask every one of our guests. So this will be your first, like, knee-jerk reaction, and we'll fire through our pay-it-forward questions. What are your primary sources of information? Probably Twitter. How do you discover new information? Twitter. What book are you reading? I have a newborn, so I don't read. <laughs> You're reading ABCs. Got it. Got it. Got it. I read bottle instructions. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Seuss. Okay. Got it. Do you have any rituals or habits you swear by as a CEO? Meditation. And who are three entrepreneurs or leaders you admire? I admire so many people. Um, Oprah, of course, because she's Oprah. Um, my mother. Uh, Nelson Mandela. I'd put him on the list. And, I mean, Martha Stewart. I mean, all sorts of people. I have a long list. I have yeah, a long, yeah. long list. Desmond Tutu. I'd put him on my list, too. Um, what is the best advice you ever received? To just do it. Are there any particular myths you'd like to dispel for our listeners? About me? Or just in general? Like, about any, the world? Any myth on... 
Well, you've already busted Not the bed. black women can sing. <laughs> someone asking me. I, I can't sing. I am the worst singer in the entire world. You do not want to hear me sing. Okay, so worst case scenario, you and I have a cabaret at because we will like clear <laughs> out venues Everyone everywhere. Leave. <laughs> Got it. Okay, there we go. Um, what words of advice would you give listeners about taking risks and closing the confidence gap? The same piece of advice someone gave me, just do it. Stop thinking. We think too much. And do it. Your, your heart's telling you to do it. Do it. And what does think broad mean to you? Think broad means expanding your mind, getting out of your safety zone, getting out of your own little box, and seeing the world from another view. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broadmic and grow the Broadmic community. Broadmic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.